So you need to be approachable and you need to realize that you're a member of a team. And a team is only as good as its own players. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facility, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant who's been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast to all the emergency medicine clinicians out there. We know what you go through and we appreciate you. Today, I am very happy and humbled to host our guest, Robert Blum, physician associate, and should I say a veteran one at that. Before we go on to hearing from our guest, I'd I'd just like to tell everybody personally, I graduated in 2002 and I've been following Robert Blum from afar, his advice, his guidance, his pearls about the workforce for many, many years. Uh, Again, for 20 years, it's a big treat for me to be hosting him. And for all of you out there listening, very fortunate to be hearing some very valuable uh, wisdom from our guests. So uh, with that, Bob, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction, Omar. Bob, why don't we first uh, start off with, tell our listeners just a brief story of your journey, which is quite colorful. Every one of us has a journey. The moment we're born, we begin that journey, and we don't make decisions in our very early years. But I made my first decision on my journey at about age nine, when I was coming home from school, and I saw something that looked like a Model T. For those of you who can take a picture of it, you know what it is. And if someone from around the corner from where I had lived was just hit by this car and he flew about 20 feet in front of it and he was lying on the ground. Of course, he hit his brakes and he came out of the car and and he was an older man, visibly shaken. Meanwhile, I lived in Queens, New York at that time. And there are houses on both sides of the block. People came out of the houses. This was about 3.30 in the afternoon. But as I looked around me, not one of those people did anything about this situation. Some may have called from a phone to get the police come or the ambulance, but I didn't see anyone doing anything. Meanwhile, I was a 10-year-old Cub Scout. And I had the most minimal first aid in the world. And since no one did anything, I ran up to this young boy and I saw his eye actually hanging from its socket. And of course, I didn't know what to do, but I did the first thing that a normal person might do is I lifted it up and put it back in his head, hoping that maybe it would see again. Obviously, it didn't. But that was my first step in medicine. And it made an indelible mark on me. And it showed me that somewhere in my future, on my journey, I might be able to incorporate this experience and further my knowledge. And I also had the realization that many times when there is some type of a 
emergency situation, people will gawk, they'll look, but they'll freeze. And if you're going to be in our business, obviously you can't freeze. When I was working in emergency medicine, I did trauma in the emergency department, but my main job was being a surgical PA. So I had the experience of three. As I moved onward about age 17, I joined the military. And after my basic training and airborne training, I took medical training. And about a year later, I found myself in Vietnam at the age of 18. And I remember looking into the faces of some of these soldiers that were coming back to the same plane that I had landed in. They were still in their fatigues and they looked worn and weary and exhausted and sad and their shoulders were hunched back, which is kind of sad to look at a a 19 year old, 20 year old looking as these people did. And we were in our crisp little khakis. I went to a a holding area and then was assigned to my first military unit. And I was to be a combat medic, which is what I had trained for and what I wanted to do. And what's interesting about doing this type of military occupational specialty is that you see life close up and you see death close up. You experience it firsthand from the moments of silence and stillness where it's all you hear are the birds and the sound of a jungle, the sudden roar of explosions and automatic weapons and machine guns and claymore mines and grenades, and then maybe a plane coming overhead dropping napalm in a certain area or dropping a bomb. But that's the environment that we lived in. And we just laid low and we did our best to fight the enemy. And of course, when someone was wounded, they would call for me. The nickname for a medic out in the field is Doc. And so instead of calling medic and getting shot, and we didn't wear white armbands with a red cross on it, I would run from person to person and apply a dressing and stop the bleeding. But unfortunately, there were a number of people that I was unable to help. And those were young men that were 18 or 19 or 20 that died in my arms with their intestinal contents falling from their body or a hole in their lung or missing part of their head. And that's the sad part in the reality of war. When I came out of the military, there was no real job for ex-medics or military personnel. So the only thing I found out that I was able to do was to be an orderly in a hospital. Now, here I was, I was someone that took care. You talk about a first responder. We were first responders. But I not only took care of people in the field, but I was also on numerous occasions assigned to mass units where I acted as a first assistant in surgery. And they later was doing surgery myself, doing amputations when there are mass casualties, sometimes hundreds at a time, or just taking out debris, fragments from grenades. So I had a tremendous amount of experience and I knew there had to be something better And fortunately, this was 1968, and the PA field had just began, and I found my niche in being a physician assistant. From the very beginning of my career, I had always been friendly with nurse practitioners. As a matter of fact, I am the 
second president of the American College of Clinicians, which was the joint NP and PA national organization. It's no longer in existence because we only had about 4,000 members. And considering the number of PAs and NPs in this country, we felt that uh, why try to push this thing forward? I just want you to know for those who are NPs on this podcast, I'm in your corner and have been in your corner since the very beginning. Both of our specialties and professions began at the exact same time in two different locations. And I wanted to mention something, again, going back to this journey. And then after that, we'll be going at, uh, we'll be looking at what Omar had asked me to speak about in his list. But I want you to think, you've all been in a plane going to a destination, and maybe you've heard the pilot say, we're going into a holding pattern. What did you think when you heard you were going into that holding pattern? What emotions did you have when you encountered this conversation? For some, it might have been indecisiveness or fear or frustration or concern. And what have you felt in the past? Or when have you felt these same things in the past? When you were deciding on what college to go to, you didn't have an easy answer. You had many choices and there were many aspects of your life that had to be changed in order to do it. When you chose your PA or NP school, when you made a life decision, that was part of a holding pattern. You had to wait. You had to think about it. When you got into a marriage, when you purchased a house, or when you were deciding on having children, that is the journey that we've all been on. My brother-in-law was visiting this past weekend. And when I had this thought of holding pattern, my brother-in-law is a Delta captain, a Delta pilot, and he's flown all over the world. And I said, when you hear, when you speak those words, holding pattern, what are you thinking of? And I told him what I thought of or what many people thought of. And he said, why think about the amount of fuel that I have in my aircraft, a change of flight plan? possibly alternate ramps or airports, the fact that I have to notify the passengers. I have to go through a checklist, which is in every cockpit. And I have to make the decision, am I going to go to an other airport? So the difference between our decisions on our journey and his is that we might be indecisive. We were indecisive the entire route and had to put things into our mind's computer and make a decision. He had decisiveness. He knew what he had to do. So decisiveness should be the foundation of everything we do. And that decisiveness and the foundation is built on facts, truth, and reality. And choosing your career or your specialty is exactly the same. It needs to be built on facts, truth, and reality. Thank you for that. You know, as I heard you speak on this last bit about the comparison between one's journey and their profession and your brother-in-law, the captain, flying this plane and holding pattern, the word that came to mind when you were speaking was being intentional, intentionality, being intentional about your career and being a captain of your own ship 
versus just being a log on a stream somewhere and, and letting the stream take you wherever it wants to take you. Before we move on to our next section, for all the listeners out there, again, I'd like to emphasize very colorful and characteristic and unique span of a career that Bob had. Bob was starting off as, as a PA about the same time, literally about the same time as Stephen Turnipseed. And as I said, Bob, I know you didn't know this, but uh, I'd followed your career when I graduated because I was inspired by a lot of the pioneers. Like, how did you do this? How did you know how to be a PA when others didn't even know what a PA was? And the point that I'd like to make for all the listeners is everybody brings different capabilities, talents to the fight. Some are good at A, others are good at B. Not everybody has to be a Robert Blum. I would like everybody to take note that you're listening to living, breathing example of the full breadth and capability of what a PA can do. Times are always going to be different. Challenges are going to be different in medicine, certainly in emergency medicine. But Robert expanded his capability based on the situation in front of him at the time. They needed Robert to be ABC. They needed Robert to be XYZ. And he was willing and interested and motivated. And what came out the other end was a very, very valuable capability. And the reason I'm highlighting this for everybody is because we find ourselves in a lot of discourse right now in medicine, especially emergency medicine, which is my passion about what PAs and NPs cannot do or what they should not do. And I guess this is a good opportunity to look back and say, among the best of us, Robert, what is it that PAs actually have done? What is it that they have done successfully? What is it that they can do? Again, we don't have to do all the same thing. We don't all have to be Robert Blums, uh, but this is a good example of what PAs can do. Okay, so on to our next area of discussion. Robert, I imagine that NP and PA schools hardly have enough time to go into depth regarding personal liability insurance. And I can say that a great number of EMNPs and PAs feel that their liability risk has increased somewhat and will continue to do so based on a number of contributing factors like admission transfer bed holds in the ED. You come into work and you know that there's no place to see a patient in the department, so you're going to have to practice waiting room medicine for the rest of your shift. That means folks that need IV started for contrast CT studies may likely have a delay. That means that starting therapeutic interventions like timely antibiotics, even for sepsis, may be delayed. Another contributing factor, increasing our liability, a nursing shortage, provider shortages, EMS delays, transferring your sick patients to other facilities once you've identified they need higher level of care. Could you please talk about consideration for securing any personal liability insurance for emergency medicine services, even though the institution or your staffing group provide some coverage? Uh, certainly. Fortunately, I retired three years ago after a 47-year career as a PA. And things at that time were nowhere near as precarious as they are now. I had a strong nursing support team, and I appreciate nurses to no end. And an emergency nurse, and particularly a certified emergency nurse, is really a godsend. So we had the nurses. If there was a problem, there was always a senior PA around. 
I was the senior PA, but there were others like myself, and sometimes I would bounce ideas off them. And if we had encountered something that we had never seen before, we were able to approach a emergency room physician and we were able to get the help that was necessary. Today, things have changed so radically in that you have a tremendous nursing shortage. There's an, an exodus of nurses. You have a tremendous exodus of physicians in the emergency department, which means that with smaller staffs and lesser staffs, they don't have the opportunity to give you advice. And what they may do in different situations is either not answer you because they are quote unquote too busy, or they may come up with a quick remark like, didn't you go to school to learn these things? as if you were expected to do that. And for the young nurse practitioner or physician associate, that discourages you from even asking a question. Meanwhile, if you're not getting answers to questions and you haven't done something before, and there's no one beside you to help train you or lead you, you're opening yourself tremendously to a malpractice situation. And all hospitals have a malpractice carrier, and that malpractice carrier covers your duties and your responsibilities in the emergency department. But what most PAs and NPs do not understand is that this is also based on you following the rules. Did you follow procedure? And part of that procedure is always to get help when you needed it. That's not there anymore. So you're trying your best and you're falling short of following procedure. Because of that, you may find out if there is a litigation and a plaintiff has made charges, which is a scary thing when you get a blue subpoena and it tells you all the things that you, you've done. And of course, none of them are true, but or most of them are not true. But it's a scary thing. And you find out when you meet with your hospital staff that, well, you might not be covered for this because you didn't do step one or two or three. Or you had been covered during these incidents, but now that hospital has been bought by another mega system. And now the malpractice carriers have changed. And you no longer had the coverage that you initially thought you had. And most PAs and NPs, when they're hired by an institution, they don't even look at their malpractice policies. So it takes a savvy one who needs to be alert to what pitfalls you might find on your journey and say, what can I do to change this predicament? And the one way of changing it is to purchase your own personal liability insurance policy. In a few minutes, we're going to be talking about legal things, hiring an attorney and so on. You need to keep in mind that a personal liability insurance policy, it has your name on it. You know everything that's covered. And if you get an occurrence policy, that means you are covered forever. Anything that you've done in the past, anything that you're going to do in the future, you are covered even after you retire. 
it has covered you because you've been paying into it the whole time. Whereas you, if you have a claims made, you will find out that if the institution changes, if your employer changes, if you haven't been notified of a change of malpractice carrier, you may find out that you have to pay a tail. And the tail may be twice the cost of a policy. And many people across our specialties are paying the price of a tail. So when you're looking for employment, try to find out if you can get your personal liability insurance or whether or not your institution will pay for it or pay at least half of it so that you can be secure and so that you can sleep at night. Does that answer it, Omar? That answers. I'd like to expand a little bit. So for just purely for simplicity sake, sometimes I find myself distinguishing and categorizing EM, NPs, and PAs into three buckets of kind of experience and capability. So bucket one would have your new grads. Bucket number two would be your moderately experienced. And bucket three would be your senior experience. I think you would agree that nobody in either bucket is immune from legal action. You agree with that, correct? Absolutely, 100%. Okay, so then the the next thing that I wanted to expand upon, and and again, I'm asking a veteran, despite the fact that I've been doing it 20 years, you did it double than I, I'm sure that there is some proportionality involved with risk and experience, meaning you're probably at most risk when you're right out of school because you're you're learning your craft and there's things that we don't know we don't know. Would you agree with that just general description? Uh, yeah, I, I once used that term that we don't know what we don't know in the presence of Paul Lombardo, who is one of the past presidents of AAPA, and he was the chair of the Stony Brook PA program. And he didn't particularly enjoy it, but I don't really care what certain people like or dislike. I have to be honest and truthful. And I taught at Hofstra University for five years. I was the instructor of surgery and emergency medicine. And for both of those subjects, I told my students that when you graduate, and you pass your boards, you're not a PA yet. You may say you have a, you're a PA, you may have a certificate that says it, but it takes at least two years to gather enough experience where you feel comfortable doing some of these things. And it takes two years to put it all together. So does that answer? Yes, that answer. It's funny that you're slanted. I think we have similar viewpoints. I as well don't mind being humble, not only about myself, but my profession and being honest, because if you're honest about yourself, then you know the areas that we need to work on. But as it pertains to to graduating, I used to say the same thing in my infancy in my career and all throughout my career that when you graduate and you earn the title PA-C, you get certified, all that means is you've done just enough to get sued. (laughs) That's what I used to tell people. At least as a student, you, congratulations, you can now get sued. So don't, don't brag that, that you're a PA yet. Wait for about two to three years. Then you could do right now. You're in, you're in the danger zone. But where I was getting at with the proportionality is that we know that it's a busy world when you graduate, you're trying to find your first job. And nowadays, more so than before, Bob, the amount of loan and student debt that these brave folks incur is quite a bit. We know it's like being in the hustle and bustle of a bus depot. Look, I'm just trying to get my job and trying to get my loan paid off. It's sometimes it's hard to even get a job. I might have to move. 
and things like liability insurance is beyond an afterthought. It's an after afterthought. Uh, yet this is the group that that likely has the most risk. Would, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. So that's great information on that. Moving on, Bob, we, we're living in a new world. Everybody has a phone with a camera. Recording oneself and posting oneself and other things on social media has become commonplace. However, I know that I've seen an uptick of patients and patient families and friends trying to and asking to record me during a procedure. This has happened plenty of times. I once had an angry patient uh, who was unhappy with the encounter in real time and pulled out his phone and, and he just says, that's it. I'm going to start taping you right now because I, I'm going to sue you. This is now a staple in our society and I don't believe it's going away. Can you share your viewpoint on this issue of allowing a patient or their family or friends to tape you while you're in the middle of an, an encounter? I'd only be too glad to. Uh, a number of years ago, maybe, maybe 10 or 15, there was a national broadcast about two surgeons, a cardiac surgeon and a plastic surgeon, who were doing a consultation. And unknown to them, the patient had a recording and video device with them. And the patients asked questions on the number of procedures that this surgeon had performed and their practice settings and their results. And what these surgeons did is they embellished everything. If they really did 15 procedures, they said they did 350 procedures. They would talk about the fact that I've never had a malpractice suit or I've never had a patient die. Well, if you've never had a malpractice suit, it means you've never operated on a patient because the more work we do, the greater opportunity we have to become embroiled in a litigation. And that goes for every one of us who are practicing as emergency medicine PAs or NPs. We are seeing a tremendous amount of patients. I used to see on a 12-hour shift on a weekend, on a Saturday and a Sunday, I would see usually about 75 to 80 people in my 550-bed ER. So that's a lot of people. And you need to keep things in your mind. And many times you're going to find a situation where someone may choose to, or unknowingly to you, may have a device going, a recording device. One of the things that I saw, oh, maybe eight or 10 years ago, I was asked to speak to it, and I did. Sometimes a clinician will invite the person to take a picture or a video of their closure because they have something that can be the most destructive thing in the world, and that is they have an ego. And you can't bring your ego into the emergency room with you. You might have self-confidence, that's great, but the ego is something that stands out just like your white coat or just like a stethoscope. Your patients are going to see it. And it's not uncommon for patients to bring cell phones into the ERs or the urgent care clinics, which are even more dangerous because there's no supervision in most cases, to record the verbal interactions, to photograph their wounds, to film closures, 
to take pictures of x-rays, and to look at your final wounds and dressing. And the liability that stems from this is the fact that the professional may have faulty technique. Someone showed me a video of a closure. And as I looked at it, and I'm someone who used to have a train-the-trainer course, and I trained the European and the Asian trainers who were working for Ethicon in suturing and suturing techniques. I've trained nurse practitioners and PAs for at least 25 or 30 years. I had four-hour and six-hour courses on closure. And you walked out of that program learning about 10 or 11, 12 closures and why and when we do them. So all of this is important. And when I look at a film of someone doing a closure, I'm able to ascertain whether or not it was done properly, whether or not a different type of suture should have been used or a different type of closure should have been used. I'm able to see the faulty techniques and the poor choice of a dressing or an improper splint. And that, when that takes place, because someone has taken a photograph, that causes liability for the institution, the hospital, and for the provider itself. You have to also think of yourself, think of HIPAA. How many eyes are going to fall upon the photographs, including the lawyers? Or do we want to know who has listened to it, our discussion on the present illness? There might be errors in judgment and often pertain to our egos or the desire of a patient to substantiate a litigation. So let's ask another question relating to this. How can it be prevented? And this is how it can be prevented. You need to have signs in the waiting room, and that sign has to have a date on it. You don't want to have a sign and try to introduce it in a courtroom, and they say, oh, you probably put that up a year or two after the litigation. Have it signed then. But that sign should be there, and you need to discourage this behavior as it is a HIPAA violation law. And recording is not only an entrapment situation, but a potential violation of privacy and law. So your clinic or your emergency room director or your urgent care center should have a written directive to all the employees telling them to watch out for it and to not allow it at all. So if a patient insists on taking a picture or proving that you have a faulty diagnosis or didn't like your closure and wants to film you, if they make giving you a hint of that even beforehand, you need to tell them, point to the sign that's hung up in that department that says no videos and audios are permitted. And if they will not comply, you call security and security can remove them. You don't want to get into a fist fight with someone, and there are some people that are hot and can do that. That's not our job. But you want to prevent to the highest ability that you have, and that would be in calling security because it's a violation. And take notice that a violation of this policy can invalidate your clinic or institution's liability insurance. So you thought you had liability insurance, you allowed pitches, suddenly you don't have liability insurance. And it's because you didn't listen or you didn't comply to the rules. So your best stake 
is to have a personal liability insurance policy or join a program such as PA Assist. Um, I know one of the companies that has PA Assist that changes your out-of-pocket settlements should you be found guilty. Great advice. One last comment on, on that topic. In my 20 years, more so in the, the latter half of my career, I found that the demographic of patients, family members, patient friends that want to video uh, stuff seem to be well-intentioned, innocent people, but they're the younger generation. You say, hey, this is cool. Can I tape this for the patient themselves? I'd like to have this. So it could be well-intentioned. But as Bob says, if this is a point in the policy of the hospital, which None of us know the policy of the hospital or our staffing group. And we find out after the fact that we've just nullified the coverage because we said, yeah, sure, it's okay to tape it. And then that's that's a bad way to find out after the fact. So a great point. As we approach our final lap here, I'd like to talk about this brewing conflict that's unfortunate in my eyes. I don't think there should be a conflict between emergency physicians on one side and EMPs and PAs on, on the other side. I feel strongly about the following. And again, these are just my opinions. Emergency medicine has multiple problems. Reimbursements were already beginning to shrink prior to COVID. Prior to COVID, an emergency physician shortage had already begun. There were all these grim projections about the shortages that would occur. Then COVID came along and disrupted EM nursing staffing, emergency physician staffing, and EM NP and PA staff. Private equity is disrupting EM provider staffing groups. EMNPs and PAs have provided valuable contributions to emergency medicine, and they continue to do so. Are there things that folks can do better? Of course, there always is. But I believe the best solution to emergency medicine's problems will be found in a team comprised of emergency physicians, EMNPs, and PAs. That's where I believe the solution will be found. EMNPs and PAs need to take more active, vocal, role on the team. I'm not talking about being combative, just a more active vocal role. They have to assume more leadership roles in the staffing group, within the emergency department, and within the hospital itself. What are your thoughts, Bob, and parting advice to senior emergency medicine, MPs, PAs, moderately experienced clinicians, and junior clinicians on how to move forward on this? I think you summed up all the realities that are there, particularly over the past few years since the COVID pandemic, I have from the very beginning of my practice, well, not the very beginning, but about 10 or 15 years later when PAs and NPs were accepted, <laughs> you know, across the board to a degree, I have always tried to position myself that I could get on a committee, just being a committee member. It might have been the OR committee. It might have been the emergency department committee. It might have been the trauma committee. But whatever it was, it needed to have a PA or an NP on it, whichever the hospital hired the most of and where you'd get the most support, and experienced ones who would give input. Because when I sat down at a surgical board meeting or an emergency medicine board meeting, a trauma meeting, I was respected because I had the experience. And as far as surgery, in my latter years, I trained so many younger surgeons and residents and so on. I had something to add. And you have to believe in yourself and in your profession enough to say, yes, 
I have something to add. And if I remain silent, what is going to be the final disposition of clinicians such as myself and our practice roles? You want to practice at the very top of your license. And in order to practice at the top of your license, your colleagues, your administrators, your surgeons, and your emergency physicians need to know what you can do, what you have been trained to do, what experience you do have, and you can give them input, and you can tell them what you can feel comfortable with. There are certain procedures in the emergency department, paracentesis, thoracentesis, chest tube insertion, central lines. I think that a person has to be observed. They have to learn it, be observed. Someone should sign off on either five or 10 procedures, and then they should be doing it. I was a team leader on many a code team. And why did that happen? Because I took my ATLS and I knew what I was supposed to do in a cardiac arrest situation. And also when you're in those situations, remember that you have to give credence to the people that are at the table. When you look at administration in many hospitals, you'll find out that administrator or the chief operating officer is someone who had previously, as a matter of fact, their credentials are stated, they may have been an RN. So you can't have an attitude that an RN is inferior to you. When I was training to be a medic, I owe my career to a nurse because nurses taught us our basics. And I remember doing codes, particularly when I had a code on a 20-something-year-old. I've been trying everything. I had the team working around. All of us had our jobs to do. We did them. But the nurse who was recording might have been a little old lady sitting on the side, but she still had experience. She had been a nursing supervisor in the emergency department. She said, you might think drug overdose. And suddenly it's almost as if she were using a megaphone. I had missed something. So you need to be approachable and you need to realize that you're a member of a team and a team is only as good as its own players. When I was in the military, I was a member of a very small team, 12 people who knew what they were doing. We all had our specialties and we learned each other's specialties and we all respected each other. And we respected the fact that we were considered the professionals. As we come to our conclusion here, Bob, what book or movie would you recommend to our audience? Remember, our audience is wide and vast. NPs, PAs, physicians, potential employers, recruiters. And the book or movie doesn't have to have anything to do with medicine. As far as a movie, right now we're all privy to getting something called the new, what is it? I could call out to my wife and find out. It's a hospital story that shows what happens when a new medical director takes over. And his question to his staff is, how can I help you? How can I help you? How can I help you? And the whole theme of the show, and it continues on, there must be 20 episodes, New Amsterdam. Great, great show. And it's all built around physicians, but it also has tons of emergency medicine in it. And you see how an emergency room can and should be run. And wherever you see physicians, 
you can just put your name in there. You can just put your credentials in there because when it comes to what we do in an emergency department, we all do the same thing. We're trained to do the same thing. And the more experience you have, the more they allow you to do the same thing that the physician is doing. So that's the show I would pick. And then I have three books. Okay. Coach's Early Diagnosis of the Acute Abdomen, which I would read every six months throughout my entire career. As a matter of fact, I picked it out of my attic today because I wanted to bring it down and read it again. The second is Essentials Procedures for Emergency, Urgent, and Private Care Settings. This is a book written by a colleague we have shared many times in conferences together, Teresa Campo. She's a nurse practitioner, EMP, board certified, a fellow of the American nursing profession. And it was written by her and Keith Laverty, who is a physician and a fellow of the emergency medicine physicians. And the last one, which I found invaluable when I was working in orthopedics and did a lot of orthopedics in the emergency department, is Accident and Emergency Radiology, or Survival Guide. And that's by Rabbi, R-A-B-Y, Berman, and Lacey. Those are the three books I would suggest. Awesome. Jotted all those down, and we're going to make sure our audience gets all of this. Folks, we've been listening to Robert Blum, veteran physician associate, a guy whose journey started at nine, 10 years old, who was impacted by an RN early in his career, who was supporting NPs as well as PAs from the beginning of his career, who paved a path for the rest of us to walk on through our own journey, a path characterized with milestones of PA performance, practicing at the highest limits of his profession. Bob, I want to thank you for joining us today. It was a real treat for me. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity to share with my colleagues. I would like to thank our podcast producers, the great team at Earfluence. And finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. For over 20 years, I worked with you. I learned from you. I've been inspired by you. I know the sacrifices that you and your families have made. I know that challenges that you faced, and more importantly, I know your value to the market. Thank you all for listening to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. I am Omar Nava. We'll catch you at the next episode. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast on your favorite podcast app.